Hello everyone, it's October 19th, 2021. So we got an update on Astra. They've made some upgrades and hopefully we won't see any more power slides on the launch pad. And Lucy is now in the sky on her way to Jupiter's L4 and L5 Lagrange points. We'll get into that too. So let's be on our way and lift off. Welcome to episode 330 of the Auto Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So there's a little event involving a Nauka module or a Soyuz attached to it that I didn't even know about. So uh, I think that one of you are going to tell me about that because I somehow failed to see this particular news item. I guess it just kind of escaped me. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Andrew Z sent us uh, a link to um, Liam, (laughs) Liam Kennedy's uh, like time lapse that he captured off of uh, ISS Live or NASA, TV, whatever it's called, the NASA TV live cam. Um, but yeah, so if you remember the uh, the Nauka thruster firing that flipped the the station all over the place, I missed that show uh, where you talked about it. But th- this is basically the same thing. I think the the station rotated like fifty or sixty degrees. Um, so. It wasn't Nauka this time. It was the Soyuz that is docked to the Nadir port on Nauka. Um, this is, uh, Soyuz MS 18 and they were testing the vehicle preparing to come home and its thrusters started firing at the end of the, of the test duration. And I don't, I don't know what they, what they were testing because they're, they're testing the thrusters. I guess they were just like warming them up and doing little spurts or something. But Mm. basically the vehicle decided it was time to back away from the station. And Mm. so it's, it's, uh, backup thrusters came on and just like stayed on for, I mean, multiple minutes. I mean, like it was, it was a long time and then they shut down. And we don't know why they started up or why they shut down. Right now, they're saying that it looks like they hit a propellant limit. And I'm guessing that that's like not the end of the tank and, and running out of gas. I think that's probably limiting the amount of time that any particular thruster can fire for like thermal reasons, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but they're, they're not sure what the <laughs> root cause was either. So, yeah, the station uh, started moving when it shouldn't have <laughs> huh it's just it's just a curse of nauka huh like anything even near it <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i don't know like i, I don't want to say that it's it's the curse of russian hardware like uh, all of this space hardware has has been super duper reliable well, you know once the uh, initial once the initial bugs got worked out you know um but like russian space hardware is is you know thought of as as very reliable and they've had some pretty weird things happen recently and i don't know like i just i really hope that it's just the clumpiness that that true randomness is mm-hmm. right true randomness is exactly. is not evenly distributed it's clumpy and so i'm i'm hoping it's just random clumpiness and not you know a bunch of uh, of different production issues that point to a, a cultural root cause or something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's been a it's been a bad couple of years in terms of yeah uh, Russian hardware messing with the station, but hopefully, yeah, like you're saying, that's not a trend or ind- indicative of any kind of underlying issues with the yeah. actual program yep. from Roscosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't they have plans? I can't remember now because I feel like it keeps going back and forth. Uh, what is Russia's like status with uh, the ISS going we, forward? We don't. We don't know. We don't even know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What? What? Whatever they've said last has probably changed already. So, mm-hmm. and and you know that fair enough. Like this is a very expensive program that 
scientists want and politicians don't. And so there's, you know, always going to be some amount of battle, no matter whether you're Russia or the US or any of the international partners. Like it's, it's a difficult and expensive thing to do. So the ISS's Russia and USA's get along shirt. And for real, like that's the science that's been done on ISS has been incredible, but the, the, you know, two-headed sweater that the ISS is it is really the the important part of of what the ISS represents to humanity. Mm. Um, some of that cooperation is really really incredible. But uh, yeah, MS eighteen is going home today, I believe, if it hasn't already undocked. I don't remember the the dates and times that we talked about oh, last week. No, no, I I know that I saw that they already landed because okay. um, interestingly enough, there were still camera crews there. At the landing, so they might have still been filming the the movie. Mm, like that makes sense. Part part of the movie might be yeah, them kind of you know. Sh- I mean, it should be if you're if you're doing a movie about space, the best time to do <laughs> a, a return sequence is when you're actually stepping mm. out of that capsule for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder what kind of a movie this is, really, because we haven't heard right? much about that, right? Oh, I think it's I think the uh, the the plot. I don't think this is much of a spoiler, but if it is, just jump forward thirty seconds. Is that um they they need to ultimately go to the station because somebody's sick? Uh, oh, that's right, that's right. She's a doctor, is, is yeah, Ill or something. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I like Mike's uh, conspiracy theory in the chat. The MS eighteen issue was a film plot point. Let's do an update on Rocket 3.3, which we haven't talked about, uh, you know, in a yeah. little bit. But we we were keeping close tabs on it, so this is a follow up. Um, and what we've found out about that crazy launch uh, was it last month? Yeah, that was August at the end okay. of August. So what's the name that they've given to it? The something slide or the pa- power slide is what Mike power in the chat slide. says. Yeah, yeah. I think I've I've seen that and I've seen maybe something else, but yeah, power slide. I uh, used the phrase conflagratory lawnmower impression. <laughs> <laughs> uh today you and you really uh, want to kill those weeds you just yeah <laughs> this will do the job with rocket fire yeah. and you know any excuse to to use uh the word conflagratory is uh, a win in my book <laughs> right so uh astra published a, a press release this week with a fantastic title launch and learn lv0006 and like Launch and learn is so important because it's the unstated third clause in the saying fail early, fail often, right? It's not just fail early, fail often. It's fail early, fail often, and then learn from the failure. So the, the release said a propellant leakage at liftoff led to the shutdown of one of the engines. And th- this is actually a really cool failure mode. Um, I mean, not for the people who paid for the rocket, but it, it's an interesting failure mode. And it's really cool that Astra released this much detail. I mean, like for a company that was called Stealth Space for a while, this is a lot of fun. So the launch tower umbilicals connect to the first stage. There's like a port on the first stage. And what they connect to is called the first stage propellant distribution system. And so after the umbilical disc, after the umbilicals disconnect, um, the propellant distribution system like seals itself and closes this flap to, to protect it. And what happened was apparently it did seal itself, but it didn't do it fast enough or well enough because propellants leaked um, inside this uh, 
this component, this uh, disconnect mating uh, component. And they were, you know, they, they mixed, then they were um, ignited by the engine exhaust. And then because there's this flap over the umbilical port, um, it had this nice uh, confined environment that led to higher pressures than, you know, just burning uh, fuel would produce. And so that little bit of a contained explosion uh, resulted in the severing of a connection between that particular engine's fuel pump and its control circuitry. So the engine shut down, right? The, the, the pump uh, stopped pumping. And as we saw, you know, the remaining engines, uh, were able to keep this thing upright and flying towards the sky. And we talked about this after the launch, but, uh, Astra confirms that, yeah, indeed, the rocket would not have had enough Delta V to make it to orbit. And I don't think that was really a, uh, like a, a solid question, but I know I was like, well, do we know this? So the, they implemented a number of fixes. They have separated the fuel and oxidizer umbilicals so that if there's a leak in the future, they won't be able to mix as thoroughly as they did this time. They uh, modified the propellant supply mechanism to reduce leakage in the first place. And they also got rid of the cover so that if there's a leak, if there's mixing and if it ignites, it won't be able to result in this overpressure event. It'll, it'll have plenty of room to vent. That is such a thorough uh, addressing of this problem. Um, any one of those issues, um, could have been justified as enough of a fix and they weren't happy with it. They did all three and bravo. Like that's, that's <laughs> great. That makes me feel really good. Um, the press release also covered a couple of lessons learned. Um, first off, they said that the vehicle flew long enough that they were able to gather, um, a decent amount of data on their GNC improvements. So apparently after the 3.2 failure, they did, uh, GNC software updates that I'm guessing, I don't, I don't know if this is the case, but from the press release, it kind of sounds like those particular updates were responsible for, uh, Rocket 3.3's ability to do this power slide instead of just falling over. Mm. I, I can say with a decent amount of confidence that they contributed to it. I don't know if they were wholly responsible and this would have gone, uh, very much farther south if it wasn't for those updates, but it kind of sounds like, yeah, they, they might have been, um, responsible in, in a very large part if not entirely oh just yeah just to point out that right they they had uh, a pad destroyed earlier mm -hmm. in their you know development and so it's that that's, that was the difference being able to power uh -huh. slide away from the strong back and still go vertical was enough yeah. to only ruin the rocket yeah for real a and the and the fence they took out a fence, and the fence. <laughs> <laughs> no um, i think it was open they kind of helpfully uh had the fence open there so that we could zoom through if we wanted to. <laughs> I don't know, man. That fence looked pretty banged up to me, but okay. All right. Um, and then, uh, you know, they, they flew this thing high enough, presumably for safety, but also I'm betting to, to collect additional data. And so by doing that, they were able to validate, um, some software modifications to the way that, um, that the vehicle does, um, propellant mixture calculations. So 3.2, um, didn't make it to orbit because it had what they called residual propellant. And, and so I'm, here's my guess. Like, I don't know. And there's no way that Astor would like confirm this, uh, if, if I tried to get them to. But like, my guess is that 
they had loaded propellants as accurately as they could, but you always have uh, some amount of boil off and some amount of inaccurate measurement of of how much you actually have uh, on board. And so um, they had a little extra fuel or a little extra oxidizer compared to like a stoichiometric uh, combination where you burn perfectly balanced and, and you have nothing left at the end. And so my, my guess is that their fuel mixture algorithm was looking at how efficiently the engine was running, right? We're going to burn a little fuel rich so that we have some extra uh, uh, reaction mass and, you know, all these different concerns. And my guess is that their algorithm completely ignored how much fuel was in the tank. And this kind of goes to show that if you're working with such tight margins, you might want to offset your fuel mixture so that you can use up 100% of your propellants, even though it's not going to be the most efficient way to use X percentage of those propellants. For 100% of those propellants, it will be the most efficient. And so I think their algorithm just was ignoring what was in the tank. But they they updated that uh, that algorithm or that software or whatever, and um, they were able to validate that their modifications worked better uh, to some extent. Obviously, they didn't run uh, run the vehicle until it was dry. But I'm wondering if if they had an excess of fuel or oxidizer or both. Like, did they make that distinction? They might have, and I didn't see it. But as far as I know, no, they I didn't. didn't see it either. Because that would be interesting to know. And I think that like what you said is true. Al- although it kind of confuses me because if you're trying to run as as optimally as you want then that seems to be like you that would mean you're operating closer to you know something like stoichiometric i guess which means like less thrust but higher isp maybe but then obviously that's not necessarily as efficient so i don't know i mean it, it all is you know black magic to me I, I you know i wouldn't know how they calculate that and clearly they didn't entirely know either at first but you know they figured it out that's something that would be really cool to know like i actually do think about that a bit like i keep thinking about you know exactly how did they get that wrong because i because i just want to know what the rationale was or maybe it was just you know a problem with the algorithm that they didn't see or something but it seems like you know yeah. kind of like we had said before i think that this was intentional and that you know they just didn't know yeah my 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 thought is that like the the root cause is that they improperly measured their propellants during loading um which i mean sounds really drastic but it's not <laughs> like you well, know no, that you're working makes with more sense yeah yeah you're you're working with really really difficult um fluids to measure i mean like if you were given uh, a bunch of locks and told to to measure it like you have to go to weight but it's constantly boiling off. So like you're not measuring it at some point in the future. You're measuring it at some point in the past. So you have to do prediction, you know, you have to be able to predict how fast it's boiling off, which is dependent on the temperatures and the surface area and the ambient pressure and the pressure inside. It's like all these different things. So like that's a mistake. That's not really a mistake. It's just you haven't perfectly characterized a very complex system. It's something that you'll do in the it, with more experience, but you can't do it right now. And so, yeah, just being tolerant of of your imprecise measurement or imprecise prediction is is really the key here. So if that was the case, then that would mean that ground support was responsible for the last two not making it to orbit. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that, but I, I it sounds really judgy, and I know you're not being judgy, but we need to be very clear that that's not a, a judgy statement. Because, uh, I mean, you're probably right, yeah. And I just I just wonder if there's any extra... I mean, what they're doing is awesome. 
I'm don't get me wrong, I love Ashra. But I'm just wondering if it, if there's uh, any added difficulties to just having like such a mobile platform. Yeah, you know I mean something that you can set it and forget it and fire your rocket because I'll bet I'll you know, bet you're right. That simple. Yeah, to to some extent, I'll bet that that's absolutely. Uh, contributing cause yeah really I, I just i love this vehicle i don't oh like it's it's the vehicle that i know least about or you know that anybody outside the company knows least about uh aside from like some chinese rockets um but like it 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 feels so comfortable and nice like it, it feels it feels like it's a professional hobby rocket you know like mm-hmm. it just feels accessible um, mm. and I think it's just because it's such a freaking tiny company that like, you can imagine yourself working there. It's, they're not faceless. Yeah. A boutique rocket company, huh? <laughs> yeah. Exa- yeah. Like, I, obviously I'm being, I'm applying like an emotional filter to this, but like, I don't know. I think it's cool. So let's translate on over to another interesting topic here. Uh, Lucy in the sky with asteroids. So <laughs> yeah. Ben, you were excited about this and I think we all were, but you especially. Um, yeah. So we're heading to the Trojans and Greeks. Yeah. So like I've talked about Lucy a bunch before, but I thought this would be a really good time to kind of summarize everything. So uh, Lucy is headed out for a six year primary mission. It has only eight targets right now for this uh, six-year mission and it's it's going to last right <laughs> right <laughs> uh, and it's going to last well beyond this six year like the it, it is absolutely going to get um an extended mission because uh these six years only include uh one visit to the greeks and one visit to the trojans so you know, it's going to be making many more whether or not we're paying attention. <laughs> um, its eight targets are Patroclus and its moon Meniotius, and then uh, uh, Euripides and its uh, its little moon uh, Kita, Q-U-E-T-A, Queta, Kita. It doesn't matter. It's Latin. Oh, it's <laughs> it's Greek, uh, like ancient Greek is not a living language. You can pronounce it however you like. How about this? I'm going to go out there. I'm going to say it's pronounced Queta because it's named after a Mexican track and field athlete. Okay. Well, so definitely oh, that, not then it there. would be... <laughs> well, no, then be Queta. Yeah. Queta. Queta. All right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. That's So it's actually a Spanish word. That's really cool. Queta. Okay. So those are two pairs. And then there's going to be Oris, uh, Leucus, Polymeal, and then uh, Donald Johnson or Donald Johansson. So mm. uh, Donald Johansson is actually going to be the first target. Donald Johansson is actually a main belt asteroid, and asteroid Donald Johansson is named after the paleontologist Donald Johansson, who is credited with the discovery of the Lucy skeleton. Um, Lucy is a very early hominid. Is she? The Australopithecus. Australopithecus. Australopithecus was like a really important discovery. There's that one great joke in in Futurama where they keep talking about, you know, a missing link and they fill that in and then there's another missing link. So like every missing link that you fill in, you really have like two additional missing links that you create. But uh, Australopithecus was like one of the big missing what one of the big gaps that we needed to fill. And I think Australopithecus is like the earliest uh, species that isn't a common ancestor between humans uh, and and chimps, I think. Yeah, and just to stave off any future correction burns, uh, the, it, she's not a missing link between humans and chimps because chimps and humans share a common ancestor because I can right. already hear somebody saying that. Right, right, right. Yeah, a missing link going back to our common ancestor. Exactly. 
yeah mm. good good uh good specification so okay um asteroid donald johnson will be the first target and it's more of a test uh target but it's you know it's in the main belt and uh, it is an interesting target in and of itself uh it's i believe i'm saying this off the cuff so I could totally be wrong, but I believe it's a carbonaceous asteroid, but it's a weird carbonaceous asteroid for one reason or another. We'll talk more about it when we get there, I think. But uh, yeah, so uh, Donald Johnson and then uh, Euripides and Keta will be the first Greek targets. Um, and then all of the other ones that I mentioned are all Greeks. Um, once Lucy leaves the Greeks and goes over to the Trojans, um, the only selected targets over there are Patroclus and Manoeus. Manicius. Manicius. Okay. Patroclus and Manicius. I like that. So just a quick correction. Donald Johansson is actually pronounced Donald Johansson. I just want to put that out there before we get a correction for that. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, right. Go ahead. And I'm, I'm sure it'll be doing a lot more work while it's in its first visit to the Trojans. Um, but then, of course, it'll swing back around uh, to the Greeks. So I, I've talked a lot about the fact that it's going to the to the Trojan asteroids of Jupiter. But why is this an interesting thing to do? Like, the, the resonance is really cool that you get to look at two big groups of asteroids. And you get to look at two big groups of asteroids that keep themselves in the right place, right? They're very neat and tidy. But like that makes it easy to go there. But why would you go there in the first place? And so what's going on is they're, they're trying to validate or invalidate the Nice model. Um, it's spelled N-I-C-E. It's named after the, the town in France. Um, and Dennis, it, this is probably going to be um, something that you should, uh, should talk about or at least follow up. But the idea is that the Trojans are like a, a, a snapshot from the end of this planetary migration period that the nice model uh talks about did, did you want to did you want to talk about nice i don't really have much more to say than just what you covered okay. <laughs> yeah um so basically the, the nice model says that four billion years ago or thereabouts the giant planets were closer into the sun and this is something that we see in in exoplanets right they tend to have very very large gas giants very close to their stars. And the thought is that, um, that the soul system, uh, did something similar, except our giants wound up being so close. And I think this is true of most of the exosystems that we've looked at, but they're, they're so close that they wind up interacting with each other. And in this system, at least they, uh, appear to have perturbed each other into the higher orbits that we see now. The interesting thing about that is that they're not just perturbing themselves, they're perturbing every other thing with gravity in the system. And so 99,999 out of 10,000 objects wound up getting ejected from the system. Um, and so one out of those 100,000 stayed in the system, and most of those wound up either accreting into rocky bodies, forming the main belt asteroids, or getting picked up as uh, a Trojan asteroid to one of the gas giants. And so what's really cool is that the Trojans represent objects that could have become planets um, and, and would have become planets if they weren't captured as Trojans. And so it's like right before we get real planetary formation, we pull out this sample to save for later. Um, and, and so that 
targets? What makes them interesting targets? Now, the question is like, and sorry, just, yeah, just so I can make just one adjustment. So that was a very nice, uh, I mean, that was, that was good. That was a perfect kind of, uh, encapsulation as much as I know about the, the, the nice model, um, which I still love to call the nice model because it's, yeah, the planets playing nice with each other. It's so nice. But, um, there's one, one slight adjustment though is that, um, the kind of hot Jupiters that you're referring to that we see in other planetary systems, those are like, you know, could be much closer than even the orbit of Mercury around our sun. Right. In, in, in the Nice model, we're still talking about the, the closer in sun being beyond the orbit of Mars. Oh, Maybe really? like a third-ish as far. Yeah. But then, and then, and then it would move out along with, you know, the other big ones. And that aspect of it, I like that name is called the grand tack scenario. Cause, um, for some reason, the, I guess the hydrodynamics of it interacting uh, with the disc, uh, is like a ship tacking, I guess. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I want to know more about that. I'm, I'm going to have to try and remember to look that up. So, um, <laughs> do, do you, are you familiar with any theories about why our star system looks different than some of the hot Jupiter containing systems? I mean, my first instinct would just be anthropic principle. Yeah. If we had a hot okay. Jupiter, there wouldn't be an Earth where we are. Okay. <laughs> and so, okay. That's yeah. off the cuff. <laughs> I mean, that, that totally makes sense. I was just wondering if there was like some reason why, yeah, yeah. you know, our star wound up with its gas giants a little farther out. And, and it is partially a selection effect too. I mean, the, the easiest planets to find mm-hmm. would be these hot Jupiters. They're massive yes. and they're close. In, so they're really pertur- like tugging on their host star. Yeah, exactly. We have so many selection biases, um, both in our closest data point and our uh, later observed data points. Um, so cosmology is the study of the formation of the universe. What is the study of star systems called? Do you know? Um, I was going to say astrology, but that can't be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think you would just call it uh, like, like you, you study planet formation. Planetary formation. Or, or you study debris disks, or you study proto-solar disks, or proto-stellar disks, or you study, like, I feel like it's, it's more, uh, it's just, uh, it's still under the branch of, uh, planetary science. But yeah, and, and there's also an interesting combination of, uh, or, or interaction where planetary scientists, you know, who, like, study the things in real detail, um, versus people who've discovered exoplanets who were traditionally astronomers, mm-hmm. um, and then those two worlds meet. <laughs> and so you've got uh, basically people that have a lot of dual appointments in astronomy and planetary science departments, if they're split like that. Hmm. And so you got one, one foot in each uh, world where you're doing remote sensing of very distant planetary systems. And yet at the same time, you're talking about planetary science. And so you have to speak with both communities. So that, that's why these targets are interesting. Um, the question then is, how do we extract knowledge from them? And that's what's really cool about this. Lucy's a bit of a fishing expedition. Um, in pretty much any other field, um, that would completely invalidate its results, right? If you're studying people, you don't collect as many data points as possible and then do, you know, ex post facto uh, comparisons and look for correlations and then go, oh, look, it's significant. It this means something. Well, no, it's not significant because you didn't include how many things weren't correlated. You're actually allowed to do that in this field because we just don't know what we should be looking for. We can't form hypotheses uh, before we've actually done the exploration. And this is a very quantified uh, field of science. So you you can go back and do uh, additional 
statistical tests and ask new questions after the data has been collected and also be uh, confident that your result uh, is meaningful. So yeah, like, like I said, it's a fishing expedition. They're basically going to go out and measure a bunch of things and see what they see. And it's kind of fun. There's a planetary society, uh, article linked in the show notes. And, uh, the author Paletta gives only one example, if I remember correctly. And she said, maybe color will correspond to density. And it's a very planetary society kind of question. It sounds ridiculous, but it's actually very meaningful. The the, the uh, Trojan asteroids have a bunch of different colors. Some are gray, some are red. And it's thought that their color corresponds to where they were formed. Um, and so um, it, if that turns out to be the case, then maybe that means that you know, they were in their formation locations and stayed there until, you know, relatively late during this uh, accretion uh, period in the in the formation of our solar system. They, you know, they they were where they were. They picked up different colors and different densities and whatnot. And then uh, as the gas giants moved around, they wound up mixing them up and, and forming a, a nice. Um, it's another word for variety. It starts with an A. Assortment. Assortment. Sort- there you go. Yeah. Making a nice assortment platter uh of uh of asteroids out in the uh in the trojans so the data they're going to be collecting comes from three instruments there's lori or lori because it's spelled l apostrophe l o r r i that's the lucy long-range reconnaissance imager there's loralph which is the panchromatic and visible color imager uh, that's going to be doing um infrared spectroscopic mapping of the surfaces of these asteroids. And then there's LATES, which is the Lucy Thermal Emission Spectrometer. Uh, they all have apostrophe L apostrophe at the beginning of their name. And um, these are all OSIRIS-REx instruments that have been upgraded and been slapped with an L apostrophe at the beginning. <laughs> um, oh, so- oh, sorry, Ben. Just, just, just the tests. Lori and Ralph are uh, New Horizons. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, it's pretty cool that we get to use these instruments. They're they're upgraded, from what I understand, but it's like they they keep their name and they they go out to a new location. And like that's the boring science that I love, right? Where we're picking uh, vehicle like spacecraft buses and thrusters and science instruments off of a shelf. Um, we're not there yet, but we're getting close and seeing this sort of repetition is a good sign. It means that we're not spending as much energy innovating and we're spending more energy and money and time actually going exploring. Lucy also has, um, a fun fact. Uh, Lucy's going to be the furthest discovery mission to use solar arrays instead of an R, uh, an RTG. Its solar arrays are those really pretty circular arrays that expand in a fan shape, kind of like, um, uh, Cygnus's. Um, and, and I think, I think Lucy's a, a very cool looking vehicle. I think it's a very cool looking vehicle, if only for the fact that it's thermal blankets are silver instead of gold. It looks so much <laughs> more sci-fi to me. Um, so the launch went well. And what's really cool is that Lucy was launched on the Atlas V Centaur that was planned to be used for Starliner OFT2. 
Um, ULA decided to make this switch, not NASA, although I'm sure NASA uh, okayed it. To be able to do this, they had to remove the two SRBs um, that OFT2 needed, and they also had to replace an avionics box. I'm not 100% sure uh, what the deal is uh, with needing uh, new electronics. And the reason that it was worth doing this, aside from just the scheduling benefits, is that this booster... Uh, had already gone through a tanking test. So they, they needed less prep work to, to get it up and running. And by less prep work, I mean less prep work, including re- removing some SRBs. And, uh, this Centaur, I think one of the reasons that they, uh, might have had to replace the avionics box is because this Centaur used a technique called RAN steering. Uh, RAN stands for right ascension of the ascending node. Uh, R-A-A-N. And RAN steering is a thing that ULA likes to do. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is, but basically by using this technique, uh, they can allow for a wider launch window. So in this case, uh, they were able to have a 75-minute window instead of an instantaneous window. And obviously, if you have a 75-minute window, that means that if you uh, have violated a weather rule, but it looks like it's clearing up, you have 75 minutes to wait for it to clear up as opposed to having to scrub and wait for the next uh, opportunity the next day. And, and so RAN steering is just doing burns out of plane to change uh, the inclination of your orbit. Anybody who's played Kerbal Space Program should be very familiar with this. Uh, and should not think that it's a big deal in the world of KSP, uh, but you should recognize that it is a big deal in the real world. Previous missions have also uh, used this RAN steering technique. Um, ULA has uh, like a publicity page on uh, RAN, the RAN steering technique, and they, they say that they've used it on Landsat 9 and Parker Solar Probe, among others. But what's really interesting is uh, both of those two, or at very least Landsat 9, I'm confident, uh, used RAN steering during the ascent phase rather than having the Centaur do it after it's uh, gotten into orbit. The reason for this is that if you do RAN steering during ascent, it's more efficient. Um, you limit your cosine losses uh, by combining two burns at once. Um, the problem is that it results in more complex um, downrange uh, interaction, downrange requirements. You have to do very complex tracking to watch this out of plane maneuver happen. Um, it's, I mean, it's basically a dogleg maneuver, right? Um, but if you wait until you're on orbit, you're going to have to pay more in terms of Delta V, but it's way less of a burden on your tracking capabilities. You do all of the orbit characterization, and then you can do the calculation, and then you can do the burn done and done. You don't have to monitor it quite so closely while you're doing the burn. Um, Cygnus uh, uses uh, RAN to extend its uh, launch window. Um, but interestingly enough, Starliner doesn't. Uh, Starliner goes with an instantaneous launch window due to crew safety requirements. Lucy uh, is uh, light enough that they can do this uh, burn once they're in orbit, but I I believe both Cygnus and Starliner do it uh, on ascent as well. And so Lucy is now out doing her thing. Uh, It's it's pretty cool. Do do I get to say I love Lucy? Sure. So let's do three short and sweets. Dennis, what's the first one? First up, 
Brazil's space agency successfully tests new rocket motor. The first firing test of the S-50 rocket motor successfully took place earlier this month. Avibras, a Brazilian company that is 100% national and financed by the government, is responsible for the project. A number of high-ranking officials, including the Minister of Science, Technology, and Innovation, were present to the firing of the 12-ton solid motor, the largest ever manufactured in Brazil. The S-50 is intended to power the first two stages of the three-stage VLM, or Microsatellites Launching Vehicle, which is targeting 2023 for its maiden launch and will be capable of taking a 150-kilogram payload to low-Earth orbit. So next up, Virgin Galactic gets postponed. A Virgin Galactic flight scheduled for later this month has been delayed in order to begin an extended maintenance period of both the spacecraft and its carrier plane. After a series of lab tests, it was discovered that certain materials used to modify specific joints might have led to a reduction in strength at those locations, putting those components outside of clearly defined strength margins, though there has been no impact on the vehicle itself. This issue will be resolved in concert with a planned vehicle enhancement program, which will delay the Unity 23 mission until sometime next year. And finally, China launches the nation's first solar observatory. Last week, a Long March 2D rocket lifted off from Taiyuan Satellite Launch Center, carrying the H-Alpha Solar Explorer and 10 other satellites to orbit, marking the 37th orbital launch from China this year. The Solar Observatory, which was the main payload of the mission, was placed into a 517-kilometer sun-synchronous orbit. The mission has a planned lifetime of three years, meant to cover the upcoming 2025 solar maximum, and is also known as Sihe, a solar deity, after a public contest to name the mission. Also, as part of the launch, the rocket's first stage tested grid fins to constrain its expected drop zone. Questions, comments, and corrections. We got a couple of corrections. Uh, well, I guess one correction, one... Elaboration? Yeah, elaboration, a little bit of trivia. First one uh, is from Andrew Z, who we have we get emails from all the time, and this was about yeah. Roton and about a very cool rotary engine, right? But is that what it's yeah. called? Um, or yeah. rotating engine, but not to be confused yeah. with a rotary engine, right? Which is like oh. a Wankel engine. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right, right. So so first off, Andy, you send us so many emails that I like set them aside and look at them all at once. Um, but don't take that as a criticism or a plea to stop. It's so good. <laughs> you're like, you're like my little news feed. Uh, and it's so good. And like, most of the emails are things that I've already seen, but they're there's a shocking proportion of things that I have not seen. And I'm sorry I can't reply to every email and I'm sorry I don't read them all right away, but like it's good. You're you're doing so much work. Uh you should probably uh get together with the um the orbital index. Yeah, they've got some Oh yeah name sympathy with us. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, we really should get Andrew together with the, the orbital index. He could probably do 90% of their work for them. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to read this email, uh, listening to your podcast about, uh, Roton's annular rotating engine. Uh, it's novel, but not unprecedented. See the world war one Lorone engine. And then he's got a link to a video. Um, what's, what's really crazy is that, right. So, the um the roton engine the whole thing spins a, a rotary 
combustion engine, like a rotary cycle engine, has all of the pistons arranged radially, right? So like the the petals of a flower, the spokes of a wheel, and then in the center is the drive shaft or the the camshaft. And so the camshaft rotates, but all the like everything else stays still, like the the cylinders and the uh the valves and everything. But but this engine, the Lorone engine, the cylinders themselves rotate. And it's really crazy because they sit right behind the propeller and they spin around at the same rate as the propeller. They're just fixed to it. And you can actually see what I believe are the the fuel lines running up to the ends. Because of course, since this thing is rotating, you're going to need your valves to be farthest away from the center, right? Because you'll be spinning your exhaust out of the engine. It's really bizarre looking. I've never seen this. Um, so I'm assuming that it's got a fixed camshaft in the middle, which is a really interesting idea. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. And then the, the other one is from Ben Hallert. Uh, a couple of tweets came in. Um, Dennis, you called it Hallert ground control calling up for a TCM. Um, <laughs> and Ben, thank you so much for, for being willing to like correct me on these tiny little things that I don't think are important at first. And then like, I kind of argue with you about them a little bit. And then you, you, Every single time you convince me that, no, this is actually an important thing that I didn't include. <laughs> and it's like the smallest things that I don't think matter, and they really do. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read his tweets here. Auto rotation doesn't mean the helicopter spins in circles while falling, which is the way I described it because I thought it was a good visual way to describe it. But it's actually inaccurate enough that it's worth getting it right, I think. Um, he continues, uh, the rotors accelerate as the helicopter drops, uh, slowing descent and storing kinetic energy. When close to the ground, they change the rotor pitch and convert that energy into just enough lift to land safely. Um, and I kind of pushed back uh, saying that, well, they, they do spin around. So it's like a good visual description. He says, no, no, no. Helicopters don't actually lose their yaw control during auto rotation because the main rotor is geared to the tail rotor because, you know, they don't have a separate engine. Duh. I should have figured that one out. Um, and then he uh, gave us a, a, a link to a YouTube video. Loss of engine means loss of engine torque, but you can compensate by applying full right pedal. So yeah, they don't, they don't lose uh yaw control. They do tend to spin around, I think because people aren't applying full right pedal. Um, but yeah, th this is like, like I love getting into the nitpicky details on the show. And I think, I think I was thinking, well, it's, it's flight and not space. So I'll just skip over it. But like, these are actually really interesting and important details. So thank you again, Ben. Uh, I'm sorry for the mumbling and grumbling that I did when your tweet first popped up. I mumbled and grumbled to myself and you don't deserve it, man. You don't deserve it. Yeah. So thanks for those corrections. Keep them coming. And now let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. All right. So we got just two winners, uh, the Greek and, and Anderson Denova and an honorable mention for Deskin Miller. So I guess, um, uh, well, let me do the clue first. So the clue was duck and cover. I had no idea what that meant. And I guess uh, the Deskin Miller was on the right path, but what was it that uh, maybe he didn't get quite right? No, so Deskin Miller just pointed out an interesting event that had happened anyway, which uh, could have in principle fit this clue. Ah, I um, see. And it was, it was basically an EVA where uh, a few Russian astronauts were uh, throwing uh, all sorts of stuff off of the station. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe people on the ground would have been ducking and covering to make sure that, you know, they weren't getting a Kurz antenna to hit them on the <laughs> I'd be, I'd be more worried about the cosmonaut that wasn't 
uh, at the pitcher's plate at the moment. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm getting behind you. Don't hit me. <laughs> All right. So that was not the event, but what is the event? So the event was on the 19th of October, 2014, and it was when Comet Sighting Spring had its closest approach to Mars. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the comet and then a little bit about the encounter and what this whole duck and cover thing is and how this is related to spaceflight in the first place and not just some astronomy kind of event. The comet uh, was discovered uh, a little over a year earlier in January 2013 by uh, a gentleman named Robert McNaught, who's a very, I guess, famous within the field uh, as far as being a comet hunter, comet discoverer. And uh, as its name kind of invokes, uh, <laughs> it was... Uh, discovered at Siding Spring Observatory, which is in New South Wales, which is the southeastern, uh, not corner, but in the southeastern part of Australia. And uh, its its more official designation is uh, C2013A1, uh, just kind of to keep it indexed relative to other comets that don't have kind of fancy names. As you can imagine, right, the, the fact that it was discovered at this point means that it was a long period comet. So this is the type of comet that comes in and passes through our solar system once maybe every million years or so. And so these really are one and done as far as being human beings and looking at them, right? There weren't human beings around the last time. If this thing had actually been periodic, maybe it was just diving through on a single, uh, a single orbit. And so it was discovered when it was 7.2 astronomical units from the sun. Uh, so not quite as far as Jupiter, but getting out there. At that point, it wasn't actually clear whether or not it would strike Mars. Because when the scientists were, the astronomers were looking at it and calculating its trajectory, right, you can refine it the more measurements you have. And some of those early measurements had enough of an error bar that, in principle, this thing could have struck Mars. But upon refining it, it turns out that they were able to rule that out fairly early. But it was going to get ridiculously close to Mars. It was going to pass a little over 140,000 kilometers. 140,497 is what it ended up turning out to be. Uh, the calculations, the predictions were typically around the ballpark of 135,000 kilometers. But one way or another, that's close. For context, the Earth-Moon uh, system is about 400,000 kilometers. Uh, the semi-major axis of the moon in its orbit around the Earth. And so this was going to be uh, quite close to Mars, nowhere near the distance to the moons, if you're wondering, so how does this compare to Phobos and Deimos? Those moons are very, very close into Mars. Phobos is a little over 9,000 kilometers uh, from the surface of Mars in its orbit, and Deimos about 23,000 kilometers. And so uh, very close in there. Now, what is interesting, though, is the the inclination, or I think there's a, a lot of things that are interesting about this comet, but Siding Spring had an inclination of 129 degrees, right? And so once you jump into that ballpark where you're over 90 degrees, that means, right, that's retrograde relative to Mars's orbit, uh, or you know, really retrograde relative to everybody's orbit. <laughs> and so that meant that it was coming in really fast. And we're, so we're talking about a relative velocity of 56 kilometers per second. Uh, not quite Parker Solar Probe, but that is quite fast. The Earth's is about 30 kilometers per second for context. There was concern, Mars, you know, this is 2014. We already have all these spacecraft at Mars, along with a couple inbound ones. Maybe these comets with their large uh, dust tails, it, it might be raining debris at very high velocities around the spacecraft there. 
And so you can kind of see where that clue uh, might be coming in, the clue duck and cover. So people were trying to make measurements uh, or predictions, estimates of what kind of flux of particles, where there's sort of two things you can talk about. You can talk about gas particles, which are going to be molecules, individual molecules, or you can talk about things that are, I don't know, if micro microscopic, uh, but still large enough. So something that might be, you know, grains of dust. And so that's a, that's a much, much, much larger thing than a single molecule is. And so when it came to uh, grains of dust that were at least 10 microns up to like a centimeter in size that they were expecting, there still was, they were not expecting that large of a flux. Basically, each square meter uh, was going to be getting a tenth of a millionth uh, particles in there. And so that meant that, you know, you had quite a few square meters before you were going to actually get anything there. Wait, sorry, sorry. Can you go back over that tenth of a millionth fact? I don't think I was paying close enough attention. And that's a very, yeah, so very tiny big number. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I mean, the way to invert that is to say it would take 10 million square meters for you to get a grain that was uh, 10 microns or larger. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes, yeah, cool. Thank you. So you're not, yeah, you're not, uh, th this, this study that made these estimates, th this came later after they had managed to take some more measurements because not only do you need to know about the orbit, but you also need to know about how much outgassing the comet is going to do as it approaches the sun. And that can be very difficult to model and measure. And there's been times where uh, we've had these comets that were going to come in close to the sun and we're thinking they're going to become this great big spectacle. And it turns out that they just kind of fizzle out and don't really, you know, don't really flare up much or anything. And so or outgas that much. It turned out that that wasn't too much of an issue, but they still, uh, uh, people from NASA, ESA, and ISRO with uh, spacecraft orbiting Mars were still concerned uh, enough that they wanted to take actions to defend their spacecraft, especially since it was going to be a, a small uh, amount of corrections that they would need to take. Now, any of the assets on Mars itself were going to be fine, even with the thin atmosphere of Mars. There was nothing that was going to really be penetrating and <laughs> raining down like crazy where, you know, curi uh, where, yeah, curiosity was going to be in trouble or anything like that. Even though the estimate was about 100 kilograms of dust total from that same study, it turned out that there actually was, uh, it, it turned out worse than this. And so again, taking preventive measures to make sure your spacecraft isn't going to be struck by 56 kilometer per second space debris <laughs> was the right call to make. And while researching this, I learned a fun fact about, about these, these comets uh, that come in from really, really far out, these sort of one-and-done types, like siding spring. And I didn't realize they can have eccentricities greater than one. Now, what does an eccentricity greater than one typically tell you? That it's in an interplanetary or an interstellar trajectory, yeah. Right, right. And so you would think that if they're part of right, the Oort cloud, these, these, these comets that are way out in the outer parts of the solar system, that that would mean that these are unbound and they're going to come in and just cruise on off. And it turns out, though, that because of the gravitational interactions and perturbations, as well as outgassing is going to have an influence on the comet, right? It's not going to be in a Keplerian orbit. Uh, and so as a result, a lot of these actually have hyperbolic orbits, a lot of these comets. And so we're talking, though, like in the case of Comet Spring, its eccentricity was 1.00043. So that's three zeros before you go up uh, in any increment. And similarly, these hyperbolic comets uh, are 1.01, 1.02, things in that ballpark. Whereas Oumuamua and Borisov, these true interstellar objects, mm -hmm. had eccentricities of 1.2 and 3.3. Uh, mm -hmm. respectively so and so so they they must not be very periodic right they they must if they're relying on on weird perturbations in the Oort cloud to get slung back home 
they must is that is that reasonable or is that not at all true no no that's true i mean they, they might be periodic in the sense that they come back in a million years 10 million years after it's you know but not a previous perihelion and yeah. in the meantime in between time it's not only being it's it's getting perturbed by other things in the comet belt but also by the interstellar space too potentially you know what i mean at, at, at those types of time scales other stars are passing close to the sun and moving further away so wow. proxima centauri hasn't always been the closest star of the sun so you have a, a lot of wildness happening there so like that's even though i was referring to it as a long period comet and i i don't know if Strictly speaking, it is a long period comet. I always just think of if it's something like Halley's Comet, where we we know it's going to come back within a century or something. Uh, you know, that's that's one type of comet. But these ones that really really come out. Maybe this one might. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, it's kind of unknown whether or not it would actually come back. It really sounds like a pinball kind of situation where it like comes in to the sun and then goes way out and goes ping, 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 ping. <laughs> yeah, it, that's why the Oort cloud is, it's, it's a big swarm. You know, it's, it's, it's in, it's in virial equilibrium, but all of these, yeah, it's just a very complex potential, gravitational potential that the comet is working its way through over the course of, yeah, hundreds of thousands to millions of years, potentially. So basically it's like if the eccentricity is, if it's enough like decimal points, right? Um, mm. So you have a very small number there at the end, then it's just enough for that stuff way out there to kind of, you know, have some kind of an effect. Is, is that sort of what you're saying? Like, you know, like enough to maybe like pull it back? Because I'm trying yeah. to understand exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I think, and that was something I did, yeah, I wanted to also point out is that the long-term eccentricity can still be less than one and in a bound orbit around the sun. But during its acceleration through the inner part of the solar system, then its eccentricity does get bumped up beyond one due to these non-Keplerian effects before it moves back out into this, again, huge Oort cloud that's out there and it reduces back to its less than one eccentricity. Does that make sense? Okay, I think I see. You mentioned the outgassing. Uh, like, how does that affect it? Is it that it's kind of like blowing off stuff so that, you know, like will obviously affect the orbit in some way? Exactly. That gives it accelerations, mm -hmm. and that's the whole controversy between why Oumuamua might be a solar sail, according to some prominent <laughs> astronomer, yeah. is because it has this very, uh, yeah, it, it, their outgassing would explain it, is my understanding, with Oumuamua. It's, it's orbital, it's acceleration that it's that it is experiencing could be explained by outgassing, but they haven't been able to detect the usual culprits of gas that you would expect to see down to a limit that couldn't provide that type of acceleration. And so that's why, uh, you know, it's a solar sail, <laughs> uh, according to some corners of yeah. the astronomy community. And you know what? Look for it. Use the Galileo project. That's, I don't, necessarily want to signal boost this much but hey you know it's it's it seems like it's honest inquiry i genuinely obviously okay i'm talking about avi Loeb, and he, he he's he's right he's he's writing a book about it and everything and that's fine and he genuinely believes it and i actually interacted with him briefly uh just a month or so ago at a symposium and honestly i think that's fine i i, I don't know if i like quite the tone and timbre and confidence that he brings to it uh when he's talking to the media mm -hmm. versus when he's trying to be more modest and scientific like when he talks about establishing you know well we should try to rule this out along with everything else um, but at the end of the day i don't think it's a solar sail because it is that type of argument that well we've ruled out all the obvious things and so therefore it has to be uh, uh alien technology yeah. which i don't think that's quite that's not how it works for me you haven't really ruled out those other things what you've done is you've made them difficult to explain with the current measurements that we have and explaining 
alien technology with the measurements we have, you're not really doing that. <laughs> you're inferring it uh, based on ruling out these other things. And that generally is not the way I think that we ought to do science. So the encounter. Okay. So what happens when this, uh, this, this comet gets within roughly 140,000 kilometers from Mars? Well, Mars is, you know, we've had a presence there for a long time. And at this point, we had three spacecraft in orbit. Like I said, the, the ground assets weren't going to be uh, an issue. Uh, there were no danger, I should say, from comet sighting spring. NASA had Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and Mars Odyssey in orbit around Mars at the time, while ESA had Mars Express there. Now, because of windows, right, to Mars, that means spacecraft, like earlier this year, tend to arrive in clumps. And so we had two spacecraft that were both going to arrive just one month before this encounter in September. And so MAVEN, which was a NASA uh, spacecraft uh, that particularly focused on the atmosphere of Mars and is still in orbit today, and then MOM, the Mars Orbiter Mission from ISRO, the uh, uh, Indian Space Agency, uh, was also on its way there. And so MAVEN got there just one month before the encounter, like I said, and they did a precautionary maneuver just five days before, five days before the closest encounter, the Perry-Arian, uh, on October 9th. And that was, welcome to the red planet, <laughs> you know, you, you get there, uh, duck and cover behind the far side of Mars. Uh, yeah, sorry. So that's what that precautionary maneuver was for, was to get the spacecraft so that it was on the far side of Mars, hiding behind it during the largest flux that was predicted to come from the tail of the comet, which wasn't at Apoarian. It's actually 100 minutes later. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is like, how do, how do you know the shape of this cometary tail in three dimensions? Like you need mm -hmm. density over, over three dimensions. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's observations and modeling informing each other. And from that, you're able to make that prediction. And so depending on where you're looking, I was seeing estimates of 40 minutes after closest encounter versus, you know, 120 minutes after closest encounter. So 100 minutes after is rough ballpark. But yeah, exactly. Uh, that's where the clue duck and cover comes from, is that these spacecraft were put into orbits where they could be on the far side of Mars during, again, that highest flux coming from the comet, the, the most dangerous type of situation there. And... uh so Maven did that. Its science phase wouldn't start until early November, uh, a few a few weeks after uh, the the sighting spring would come by. So it was no big deal. And also, I just want to point out too, because we we bring this up sometimes, right? That that conception, uh, it, as this was reported in the news, you can imagine if you're not really into, if you're not a space geek or know that much about orbital mechanics, you might think, oh, well, I'll put the spacecraft on the far side of the planet, and just park it there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's going to be uh, in a geo-Martian orbit or whatever, you know, like that. But that's not quite how the celestial mechanics works, of course. And so uh, there's a lot of news articles that had to basically break that down to a, a, an understanding that, you know, everybody could digest because it is weird, right? It's counterintuitive. In fact, to, yeah, to, to hide behind there, sometimes that meant you had to fire your rockets and increase the size of your orbit, which almost seems weird and counterintuitive, but that's what uh, Mars Express did. Uh, it basically a few hundred orbits ahead of time just increased its period just enough so that it would be on the far side of Mars relative to the comet during, again, that giant flux coming through there. And can you talk about how much how much lead time we had on this? Because like obviously we didn't know about it before January of 2013. This is October of 2014. But there's there's a long period in between there where we're wondering how close it's actually going to get to Mars. Um, so if, if they made this adjustment so late, was that just because that was a, a time when they could make it or like it didn't matter if they made it before then? Or is that partially due to 
like our um, our characterization of the orbit of this um, comet actually getting finer and finer resolution and understanding what kind of danger we were going to be looking at. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, and I think it is mostly that latter one. Is that you can wait as long. There's the trade-off there, right? The longer you wait, the better we understand both the trajectory of the comet as well as the the net character and nature of its tail as it approaches Mars. But you don't want to wait so long that you end up making a you know a last-minute scramble <laughs> to duck and cover. And so I think what they did was they picked a comfortable window uh, where they knew that you know they're making this call maybe only you know weeks ahead of time or a month or so ahead of time. I mean, you could see uh, like. Uh, 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 some of the earliest ones were in uh, July, actually, the earliest uh, of the uh, the correction, or I guess it's not really correction, but the, the earliest of the orbit, orbit adjustment maneuvers was uh, July 2nd that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter made. It actually made two. And uh, so that's a few months lead time. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's the calculation you make. Uh, do, do you change your delta V by such and such amount, 100 orbits? back or do you change it by a smaller amount 200 orbits back you know and, and yeah and, and well and nobody's saying that it nobody's saying that it's actually going to be uh, a net gain in in fuel to do that earlier because the earlier you do it the less precision you have when you run time forward so like they might have even you know been able to do it that early but they weren't very confident that they that actually would have put the vehicle where they wanted it. So like, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting like decision matrix. Um, so thank you for a little bit of, uh, uh, guessing insight into it. It's always good to talk <laughs> sure, these sure. things through. And, and, and what I also thought was interesting was the amount of fuel that was needed for this. It really wasn't much. And so even at this point, when it seemed that there wasn't going to be dust particles raining down on the spacecraft, you know, raising all hell, it still was easy enough to do that. They felt, you know, the risk reward was worth the, um, you know, it was worth it. And so uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter used 0.15 kilograms of fuel and still had 254 kilograms in its pocket. Uh, Odyssey and older spacecraft used uh, a tenth of a kilogram of fuel, but still had 16.5 kilograms left. And so, right, that fuel, that that's going to be directly tied to the lifetime of the spacecraft. So you don't want to use it uh, all nimbly bimbly, uh, but you know, avoiding uh, debris coming, from, uh, you know, dust particles and even the gas, well, probably not the gas particles, but the dust particles coming from the, the comet, that's, that's dangerous. You know, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. And again, 56 kilometers per second. So we're talking very, very high velocities. And so uh, uh, University of Maryland, the Planetary Science Institute, JPL, were all involved in the, the, the research and planning for the NASA missions. Uh, Mars Express, the ESA spacecraft, uh, is in a polar orbit. And so they had a, a kind of tricky uh, one to deal with. Uh, it's, it's rather eccentric in orbit as well. But they, you know, they, they made their adjustment as they needed to. And they also did something that I thought was interesting and wouldn't have considered, right? They've got their instruments... And their thermal panels, they wanted to prioritize protecting those more than anything. So they actually changed the attitude of the spacecraft to aim the high-gain antenna, right? The giant antenna you have on the one side of most spacecraft, to aim the high-gain antenna in the direction of the particles and where they were coming. So they were going to use the high-gain antenna essentially as a shield, if anything. If there were going to be any debris strikes, it would be hitting that side of the spacecraft, where you know it might do a little bit of damage, it might do a little pockmark to your high-gain antenna, but at the end of the day... It, it still would be uh, more usable than if you were to get a unfortunate strike on a sensitive piece of uh, a smaller instrument or something. Because it's not just the, the the structural damage that these can cause, but they can also they're they're 
often charged particles, and so they can cause you know currents and voltages that you don't want to have in your instrumentation that could potentially fry it in a worst case scenario. I know that's not uh, Maven that necessarily did that, but Maven was designed to use its high gain antenna as a shield every time it went through the atmosphere. So, like, oh, oh no, no kidding. wait, is that is that true? I know that it used its solar panels to get like a little bit of lift almost. It basically aimed them edge on. No, I was going to say, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is very interesting. So another key thing about aiming the high gain antenna of Mars Express in the direction of the flux is that the way the solar panels are set up on Mars Express, that would have them edge on then to the particle flux, which is better, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what you just uh, made me look at a picture of how Maven is, Maven's high gain antenna is in the same direction as the, the flat faces of its solar panels. So that would basically make Maven as large a target as possible <laughs> if you were to aim the, uh, the, the high gain antenna towards the particle flux. Yeah. But Maven, yeah, Maven's uh, uh, solar panels have a little bit of dihedral. Like they almost look like they were, you know, uh, wings that had uh, solar panels slapped onto them. They're almost, yeah, dihedral. That was the term I learned last week. <laughs> yeah, right. But what goes around comes around. A positive dihedral angle. Yeah. So, so Colin is pointing out in the chat uh, another interesting uh, example of a Mars spacecraft using the physical <laughs> shape of the spacecraft to affect its orbit or protect itself or do those kind of things was that Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is uh, famous for, I believe it was the first example of aero braking into orbit. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And it had used its, uh, its high gain antenna and solar arrays as part of that to increase its surface area and thus, you know, successfully break around uh, Mars uh, on its insertion. And, and, and I didn't want to leave out MOM, right, the Mars Orbiter mission. Uh, that one, again, also was uh, on its way to Mars while Siding Spring was discovered. And, or maybe not discovered, but it was on its way to Mars while we knew this was going to be an issue. And so uh, I wasn't able to find really any details about what ISRO did to try to protect the spacecraft. But I'm assuming it was a similar kind of maneuver where it, it, they just adjusted the orbit using a little bit of fuel to make sure that it was behind Mars, ducking, covering during the... Uh, potentially most dangerous time due to the, the comet uh, dust flux. And so uh, it was really just a half-hour period that they needed to be behind there, because like I said, right, you can't park yourself there stationary like uh, you might think if you were reading the New York Times articles on these. And so uh, and it was about 100 minutes after the Apo-Arian, and that's kind of the... That was the event, you know, hiding from this, <laughs> which is a really interesting thing to have to do. You know, when you were planning these missions, you weren't thinking, okay, so when we're in orbit around Mars for a few years, or once we get to Mars, uh, do we need to be aware of any comet tails uh, swiping us? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's something that probably wasn't budgeted for, but people were clever and came up with solutions to get around that. Uh, obviously, uh, if it wasn't obvious, there's going to be a lot of science done on this comet as well, right? I mean, this is getting so close to Mars. And so uh, MAVEN and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbit in particular were focusing on the effects of the dust interactions with the atmosphere. It turned out to actually be a little bit of a heavier interaction than uh, they might have uh, than some of those low-flux uh, estimates uh, that the spacecraft were going to be safe uh, thought they were. They, the particles ionized and charged the upper atmosphere, so you're able to get some good uh, science out of that. Uh, this was the first time that you could see, because, right, this is the equivalent of a meteor shower, right? A meteor shower on Earth, you know, the Perseids and the Geminids and whatnot, is when we pass into the tail of, you know, a disrupted asteroidal or cometary body from back in the day, and it just has, you know, all its 
guts thrown out <laughs> in orbit around the sun, and we pass through that. And so this is kind of, you know, a, a super meteor shower, something that we really don't get on Earth anymore in terms of uh, flux. And so we were able to match uh, the observations above the atmosphere as well as the observations from the ground, because even Curiosity and uh, uh, Opportunity were, you know, doing their bit as well. And uh, Mars Odyssey was focusing more on the comet's nucleus and the little uh, kind of haze around it was called the coma. They found that it was smaller than expected, that it had an eight-hour rotation period, all this sort or all this sort of neat stuff. And so before I leave the topic, I just want to say thanks to Colin and Chat for giving... Uh, uh, I guess for Colin Ground Control, uh, sending up <laughs> a little message that uh, I need to correction burn. Uh, Mars Global Surveyor was the first space probe to use aerobraking to get into orbit around Mars. So thank you for that, Colin. And that is your space flight event. Wow, thank you, Dennis. That was uh, that was such a good bait and switch. You made me think I was going to be learning about astronomy, and then I learned about spacecraft too. That's the way I like it. All right, so next week is the 26th of October through the 1st of November. Uh, David, do you have a clue? Uh, yes, I do. And probably no bait and switch here. So the clue, <laughs> the clue is cluster thruster. Cluster thruster. So there you go. It, nice and easy. It's like saying that. I don't, I don't care if it's a totally misleading clue. Like, that's such a good rhyme. Like, that, that feels good. Yeah. All right. Um, if you think you know what a cluster thruster is, shoot us a tweet with your guess on Twitter. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, uh, we got uh, six of them or five. No, no, we got we got five of them. Sorry, the first one is on October twenty first, and that Four. is the no three. It looks like six, and I look closer. I'm like, no, I'm just not looking careful enough. Um, yes, yeah, so the first one is on October twenty first, and that is uh, the maiden flight of Nuri, which is a Korean launch vehicle. This is a South Korean KSLV two rocket, um, and this is their very first orbital launch attempt. I don't know what Nuri means. Probably some kind of a god. You know, that's usually the case, but it's carrying a dummy payload, so nothing to lose there. They're just, you know, testing it out. So good luck to them. And uh, the time for that will be uh, on October 21st at 0605 UTC through 1020 UTC. So it's like a four-hour launch window. So And that's launching from the Naro Space Center from pad LC2. Okay. Yeah, which I don't know much about Korean space yeah. centers. But in fact, yeah, this is the first I think I've heard of Naro Space Center. I think, yeah. I mean, this is their first fully indigenously built rocket. So this, okay, so this is the very first. That's kind of surprising. And it means me, world, but... by the way. And I, I well, I, th I think they have launched a rocket, though, that was like built by, I don't know, Russia, probably. <laughs> right, right, probably. All right, and then after that, also on Thursday the 21st, uh, Progress 78 is up on the ISS. It's going to stay on the ISS, but it's going to be moving uh, to the end of the NAUCA module. Um, the coverage on NASA TV is going to start at 11.30 p.m. on Thursday, um, and then the redocking uh, is scheduled for 12.24 a.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, not going to be watching that one. But yeah, just uh, undocking and redocking. And then next up, we have an Ariane 5 launch uh, in its ECA. You know, that's what it is now. And so an Ariane 5 ECA will launch on Saturday, October 23rd at 0101 UTC. And it will be taking two uh, large satellites to geostationary. And so the first is the SES-17, uh, which is a communication satellite in particular uh, designed to provide mobile internet services to airline passengers. 
and the second is a Syracuse 4A, which is the first of two, as you can uh, maybe tell by that lettering at the end there. Uh, there's going to be a 4A and a 4B, and these are military communication satellites, and uh, they're both using uh, full electric uh, satellite buses that are being built by different companies. And so uh, it'll be interesting comparison between those two. And so once again, that launch is on Saturday, October 23rd uh, at 0101 UTC and flying as usual out of Karoo, French Guiana. All right. On the 25th of October, we have uh, an H2A in the 202 configuration. Um, and that is launching QZ1R, which is uh, looks like a GPS satellite, which is replacing an older one, which was launched in 2010. And uh, so this is one of those, and we've talked about these before, uh, these, these satellites that are uh, put in... Uh, uh, a certain kind of an orbit, which is uh, specifically to get access within Japan's urban canyons, as it's as mm. they're called. Mm-hmm. So I've never heard this term except for on this website, you know, that they call them urban canyons, which just means, I guess, that you're surrounded by a lot of high buildings. Um, and so that can interfere with GPS signal. And so they put them into a quasi-zenith satellite orbit, I guess, and I don't know what a quasi-zenith type of an orbit is, or at least that's the name of the satellite system, so I imagine that has something to do with a type of an orbit. Maybe it's kind of like a Molniya orbit or something. It is. I get that yeah. confused. Okay, yeah. So that's all that one is launching, and that's on October 25th, uh, starting at 0200 UTC through 0300 UTC, and that's launching from uh, Yoshinobu Launch Complex in Tanagashima, Japan. So very cool launch center there. I have heard of that one. Wikipedia calls it a tundra-like, not a molnia type. Okay, tundra. Yeah, that's the other one. I always get those two confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and there's also lightning orbit, which is... Well, isn't that what molnia means? Molnia means lightning. Yeah, yeah. I can never remember if it means tundra or lightning. <laughs> I just I know that there are all these terms swimming around. Well, no, I think tundra means tundra. I think that that's a Russian word, oh, too. Oh, t- tundra is a Russian word as well. Okay, yeah. interesting. Oh. Okay, and then finally... On Tuesday, the 26th, so this is the day that our next show comes out, um, there's going to be a press briefing from NASA. This is a really cool one. Dennis was a little hesitant to put it in. I was like, no, it's got to go. This is good. <laughs> so this is the L-30 press briefing for DART, the double asteroid redirection test. We will talk about it more when we get closer to the launch, but uh, if you haven't heard of DART, it's really cool. They're going to slam a satellite into an asteroid to see if they can move it. <laughs> and it's a double asteroid because it's a, a, a twin, a twin system, a binary uh, asteroid system. So that, uh, that happens on Tuesday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. And I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's going to be worth tuning in if, uh, if you can put it on your calendar. Okie doke, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and let's adieu with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burdens on the fly. Special shout out to today's live listeners. We had Colin, Deathkin, Mike, Chris, aka Stike Garfield, and Sam in the chat. Thanks for joining us. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, 
Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.